Samuel chapter 3. Sunday night we're in a sermon series on the life of David. We're looking at the life of a man who was called to have the heart of God. This was not what David thought of himself. This is not what others thought of David. This is God's statement concerning his servant. When God looked at David, he said, he's a man after my own heart. David was not perfect, but David was pliable. He was moldable. And every time he sinned, he paid for it. But he learned from that sin, and he carried on with the Lord. Tonight, the message is meekness, not weakness. 2 Samuel 3 some interesting verses, perhaps you've never read these verses or not paid a lot of attention to them when you did. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, 2 Samuel 3, verse 27, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him secretly and quietly. And there Joab stabbed him under the fifth rib. And Abner died. He was murdered by Joab to revenge the blood of Ashel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house, and let there not fail from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth on the staff, or that falleth on the sword, or lacketh bread. So Joab and Apishai, his brother, slew Abner, because he had slain their brother at Gibeon in a battle. David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, Rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed after the entourage procession and they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner and all the people wept and the king lamented over Abner and said died Abner as a fool dieth thy hands were not bound nor thy feet put into feathers as a man falleth before the wicked men so fellest thou and all the people again wept with David when all the people came to cause David to eat meat, while at yet day, David swore, saying, So to God, to me, more also if I taste bread or aught else till the sun be down. In other words, David was fasting. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all of Israel understood that day that it was not of the king's orders to slay Abner, the son of Ner, and the king said to his servants, Know you not that there is a prince and a great man falleth this day in Israel? And I am this day weak, though anointed the king. And these men, the sons of Zerah, be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. Verse 39 is an interesting verse. David said, I am this day weak though I'm anointed the king. And these men, the sons of Zerah, they're 
they're very difficult for me to handle. The Lord shall reward them for the evil that they've done according to their wickedness. Now those diff verses can be a little difficult to read, to understand, so I'm going to kind of walk you back through it all. I want you to listen carefully. After King Saul died, David was crowned the king of Judah. Not the king of Israel, the king of Judah. The other tribes that made up the northern tribes, the tribes that made up what is called Israel, were still under the rule of King Saul's fourth son, Ishbosheth. For about seven years, from the time that King Saul died until David would have the full possession of the entire kingdom, there was a civil war taking place. Now, David was much stronger than Ishbosheth, but nevertheless, the battles continued. As David is trying to gain control of Israel, Ishbosheth is trying to gain control of Judah. Finally, Abner. He is Ishbosheth's general. He decides to join David's army. Why does he do that? Well, he's after seven years of civil war, he's ready for the war to end. He wants the bloodshed to stop. And so he comes to David, Abner comes to David, and he says, I am offering you my sword, I'm offering you my army, we would like to come over to your side. Now there's a problem here. Abner, the top-ranking general in Ishbosheth's army, he has killed the brother of Joab, who is the top general in David's army. Now, this death of Joab's brother in battle against Abner took place in war. And Abner did not want to kill him. But he kept pressing him, and so finally he had to kill him. But understand, it was in battle, it was in war. Now Joab is angry. He's angry that his brother was killed by Abner. He's also angry because Abner has come over and joined David's side. He's also angry because David is praising Abner for his decision. Joab is angry. And when you're angry, the chances of doing something wrong and wicked are greatly compounded. And Joab wants revenge on Abner. So Joab, unknown to David, contacts Abner and says, we must have a meeting. I want to bring you into our military strategy. I want your counsel. I want your advice as we prepare to end this war once and for all. Well, Abner goes to the meeting. And Joab takes a knife and kills him. May I use a better word? He murders him. In cold blood, he takes the life of Abner. Now, when David hears about this, he is outraged. 
Who gave the order to kill Abner? Your Highness, nobody's given the order. Joab did it of his own free will. David curses the family of Joab. He orders a state funeral in honor of Abner. But David, listen carefully, does not choose to punish Joab for his outrageous crime and sin. He lets Joab go. Joab has murdered a man innocently, a man that David respected, a, David that, a man that David was rejoicing to come over to his side. And Abner, in anger and in revenge, kills Joab in anger and revenge kills Abner. And David, though he laments, though he cries, though he's upset, though he's outraged, David doesn't do anything. Now that leads us to the question, why did David, the king of Judah, who's about to become the king of Israel, who's about to become the king over all 12 tribes, who's about to become the supreme commander-in-chief of all of Israel and all the armies of Israel. Why does he allow Joab to go unpunished? Why? You say, well, Joab was qualified. That's why, Pastor. He was a great military mind. David couldn't do without him. <laughs> no. Actually, history tells us that Joab was really unqualified for his position. He was more of a brute than he was a military leader. He was not a man of ethics. He had no morals. He had very little spirituality. Joab was kind of a loose cannon. He didn't follow orders. He did what he wanted to do. Joab would later kill David's son Absalom in another civil war that took place. And David specifically had told him, do not kill Absalom. And yet he killed him. David had also conveyed to Joab and to others that upon his death, he wanted king, his son Solomon to become king. Joab understood that and he defied David's orders. Created another civil war when David died briefly as he backed another one of David's sons and tried to dispose of Solomon. What I'm trying to get you to see is Joab had a history. Past, present, and later would be future. Of being a defiant, difficult man who did what he wanted to do without regard for orders not regard for the concerns of David. He just did what he wanted to do. He was a rebel. Why didn't David execute him? He had the legal right. He had the biblical right. Why did David let Joab live to create more havoc later? Ready for the answer? 
I don't know. After much thought, after much consideration, after much prayer, I don't know the answer anymore now that I did before I started preparing for this message. For whatever reason, David gave Joab to God. He gave Joab to God. He gave his crimes to God. He gave his sins to God. And he said, God, you take care of it. From this story, I want to teach some principles to you. These are principles of how to handle crisis. Because if you live long enough, you're going to have crisis in your life. You're going to have crisis in your home. You're going to see crisis in the church. You might even see a nation in crisis. Crisis. How do you and I handle crisis? Do we do it with weakness or do we do it with meekness? So I just want to give you some principles. You say, well, pastor, what's a crisis? It can be whatever you want it to be. Because crises come in many different shapes and sizes, styles, shades. David's crisis was Joab's murder of Abner and what he was going to do about it. I don't know what our crisis will be, but I think there's some principles we can learn from this. Principle number one. Whenever you're facing a crisis, it is vitally important to seek a word from the Lord before you act. You see, the flesh always wants to take the lead when something happens. The flesh is the old you and me. The old you and me that used to rule and reign our life before Jesus. The flesh is constantly at war with the Spirit of God that lives inside of us. Your greatest enemy is not the devil, although he is an adversary. Your greatest enemy is not the world, although this world is trying to conform us into its image. The greatest enemy that you and I will ever face is not the devil, it's not the world, it's our own self. I've looked into the mirror and I've seen the enemy and it's me. You see, all of us still have that old nature that wants to do what it wants to do without consulting God. The flesh always wants to move independent of God. The flesh always says, leap without looking, act without thinking, do without praying. After all, you have the authority to do it. You have the backing to do it. You have the power to do it. You have the right to do it. You can handle this matter. You don't need God. Just do it yourself. But you know, two wrongs never make a right, do they? A sinful action handled by a fleshy response will usually create a bigger problem. You see, the flesh says, there's the problem, here's the hand grenade, and throw it. 
Now, a hand grenade will take out your problem. But it always causes collateral damage. And the mess becomes much worse when the flesh uses hand grenades. God uses a sniper's rifle. When he takes somebody out, there is no mess. And nobody else is injured or hurt. So when a crisis comes and David is facing a crisis, what is he going to do with Joab, his top general, who has murdered Abner? What's he going to do with him? Well, I don't know if David did it or not, but David should have went straight to God. And he should have got a word from God before he did anything. There's nothing that you'll ever face in this life that has to be done right now. Nothing you'll ever face in this life that has to be done right now. Always try to get away and seek God. And don't do anything till you get a word from God what you're to do. Secondly, when God speaks to us in a crisis, after we've consulted Him, He will generally say one of three things and however He chooses to communicate to us. He might say to us, you take the action now. I'm letting you handle this. You take care of it and you take care of it now. He might say, I don't want you to do anything right now. I just want you to watch, stand back, and pray. I'll give you more leadership later. Do nothing now. Wait till later. Or thirdly, he might say, I don't want you to do anything at all. I'm going to take care of this. You keep your hands clean and you stay on top of the mountain. I'll deal with this myself. Those are the three things that God can tell us to do in a crisis. But you've got to consult God so God can speak to you. Lord, here's my crisis. What do you want me to do? I'm waiting on a word from you, Lord. My son, I want you to act right now. I've given you the talents. I've given you the gifts. I'm giving you the courage. I'm giving you the strength. I'm asking you to do it, and I want you to do it now. My son, I want you to wait. I want you to stand back and just wait. Be quiet and be still. Watch and pray. I will tell you later what I want you to do. My son, I want you to do nothing. Don't do anything. Stay out of it. This is my battle. And I'll deal with it. Okay? following now? Okay. 
David. It's not just a story about David and what he's going to do with Joab and the crisis that develops. What are we going to do when we face a crisis? Third point, to ignore a crisis and to do nothing is to allow chaos and evil to reign. To, to simply see something going on that's a crisis and then choose to do nothing is to allow that crisis to create chaos and anarchy. It's to allow that crisis to bring evil forth. Why do not people sometimes want to confront a crisis? Now, remember, you confront a crisis one of three ways, right? You get the signal from God to do it yourself. You get the signal from God to wait, watch, and pray. Do nothing right now. Or you get the signal from God just to stand back and get out of it. God will take care of you. Okay? But some people don't want to do anything. Why do some people not want to get involved in a crisis? even though they know if they do not, chaos and evil are going to reign. Well, maybe some people just get tired and weary. You know, life can wear you down and wear you out sometimes. And sometimes you just want peace at any cost. Neville Chamberlain's a perfect example of that prior to World War II. He was tired and weary physically, mentally, emotionally, and I guess spiritually, fooling with Adolf Hitler. He was willing to give Hitler whatever he wanted if Hitler would just sign a piece of paper and say, I will not go to war. You know, some people are like Neville Chamberlain. They just want peace at any cost. Just peace. I don't want any more burdens. Just peace. So sometimes tired and weariness can cause people from handling a crisis. Sometimes fear, the fear of losing on the issue, the fear of losing a job, losing security, can play a factor in why people don't do anything sometimes. Sometimes inexperience can do it. Sometimes when we're young, we don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. We don't know who to ask. We don't know whose help to get. So our own inexperience just paralyzes us. We choose not to do anything. Sometimes cowardness can be a play a part in it. We're afraid of the opposition because the opposition is vocal. The opposition is many. The opposition is strong. The opposition is wealthy. And I'm not going to take them on because I, I'm just quite frankly, I'm afraid of them. Sometimes we don't do anything because of wishful thinking. Like the ostrich, if we bury our head in the sand and cover it up, when we pull our head out of the sand, maybe everything will go away. Maybe if we wish upon a star, they're all going to go away. This is just a bad dream. When I wake up, <laughs> it'll all be gone. You know, some people look at a crisis like that. They just wishful thinking. 
Some people just like to avoid the hassle. They don't want to get involved. Other people just want to be liked. I don't want anybody to be mad at me. I just want everybody to like me. So I'm going to stand for nothing. Hoping that everybody will stand with me. When a crisis comes, you've got to do something. Are you, are you listening to me? You've got to do something. If you don't do anything, all you're doing is perpetuating chaos and the advancement of evil. You've got to do something. But you can't do anything till you get a word from God. And God's word to you might be full speed ahead. Wait. Do nothing. Fourthly, we must prepare for a crisis at any time by walking with God all the time. It's too late to prepare for the hurricane when the hurricane's here. That's why we have a disaster relief team, and much of what they do is about readiness. You don't wait till the floodwaters up to your front door before you decide maybe I ought to call Norman. You don't wait till your house is, is blown helter skelter all across the neighborhood before you pick up the phone and say, maybe I need to ask for some help. The way you prepare for what lies ahead is you ready yourself now. Because we don't know the future. Right now it might be smooth sailing, but tomorrow there might be crisis in your life. There might be crisis in your home. There might be crisis in this church. We don't know what tomorrow brings. So you ready yourself. You spend time thinking about things. Discerning things. Listening, watching, planning, praying. You know, much of my time is done, is doing that. It's looking ahead and saying, okay, if we do this, what will it mean here? If we don't do this, what will it mean there? If something pops up over here, what are we going to do? Constantly thinking about that. What would the devil do against Miles Road? If I was the devil, how would I attack our church? And what can I do as your pastor? What can we do as leadership to head it off before it ever happens? Those are just some principles. Now, I know some of you are still asking the question. <laughs> Was David weak? Did he just do nothing and let Joab run wild? Or was David meek? He went to God, he got a word from God, and God said, leave Joab alone, I'll deal with him. In my own time, in my own way, leave him alone. And David was doing what God said. What was it? David weak, I can't, I won't, 
Was he meek? I can and I will let God have it and deal with it. Well, again, I don't know. We get to heaven, we can ask David, right? But we do know this. For whatever reason, David did not do anything with Joab. Later, God would deal with Joab. When Solomon took the throne, he executed a few people that should have been executed a long time ago. And Joab was one of them. You say, Pastor, you, you asked more questions than you answered in this sermon. I don't know if I did or didn't. You know, sometimes when you look back, it's, it's easy sometimes to try to say, I would have done this or I would have done that. But I wasn't there and neither were you. I would have hoped that David went to the Lord and said, Lord, I've got a major problem here. My top general is assassinated. He's murdered another respected man that came over to our side. He did it in anger. He did it in revenge. He did it against my orders. What am I to do with him, Lord? Maybe the Lord said to David, I don't want you to do anything to him. As much as you might want to take his life right now, as much as you might want to prosecute him and put him in jail right now, as much as you might want to make a public spectacle of him for how he has defied your orders. You're the king. He defied your orders. Do nothing. Let me have Joab. I'll take care of him. And maybe that's what David did. I don't know. But the question really isn't about David as I close. It's about you and I. God in history will be David's judge. What about us? If you find yourself in a crisis, if this church finds itself in a crisis, what are we going to do? We're going to consult God and get a word from Him. We will not move till we get a word from God. When God speaks, we will act. What, what He has said to do is what we will do. And we will know what God will tell us to do because we're listening right now to God and we're walking with God right now. We're not going to wait till the crisis comes to walk with God. We're walking with God right now. We're constantly having conversation with him and the relationship that we have with him. We're in tune to what he wants us to do. And by the way, what he wants us to do in one crisis may not be the same thing he'll have us to do in the next. But we will get a word from God. We will respond to that word from God. We will do something. We will not allow something to go undone. And when it's all over, we will trust God to have done it His way and have taken something that could have been disastrous and turned it into something that will be a blessing. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.